Hello, I hope you're doing absolutely fantastic and thank you for listening to the Women of Blockchain podcast by Intelligence Academy, where we provide a unique and impartial blockchain and crypto education to everyone. I am your host, Laura Salamidu, and for today's show, I've got some time with Helen Disney, who was otherwise described to me as the legend. Helen was recently listed as a top 100 RegTech influencer and has been referred to by Barclays as the blockchain guru. Helen currently runs the company called Unblocked as a hub for blockchain events, education and information. She is a regular conference speaker and commentator on Bitcoin, blockchain and innovation policy. On today's show, we talked about how we should be defining blockchain in 2020 and what are the key skills the industry requires. Helen tells us that blockchain skills are just skills, in the sense that there are many skills that we're having today that are perfectly transferable and are so needed in order to take this industry to the next level. We then dive a little deeper, talking about how blockchain is applied in the healthcare industry, with having given a few great examples of existing blockchain projects that are already adding a lot of value. We also covered a few other use cases where blockchain can truly make a difference. We touched on the current situation of government regulations and described the ones that have created environments for accelerating and adopting blockchain and crypto projects. We then spoke briefly about diversity and how statistically diverse organizations perform much better and we summarized with some great tips from Helen for anyone and especially women who are interested in learning more about blockchain. Helen shared three practical steps that anyone can take in order to transition into the industry. And finally, Helen shared an important observation. After spending years within the space, she realized that for her, not being technical is a strength rather than a weakness. So before we jump into our interview and talk about all that good stuff in more detail, I'd also like to take a moment to thank our sponsors. PumaPay for allowing us to deliver this podcast. PumaPay is the first comprehensive crypto payment solution for businesses. They combine the flexibility of payment cards with the advantages of blockchain technology. We are excited to be partnering with the company that genuinely want to increase adoption of cryptocurrencies and help many people to pay less fees and have more control over their money. So thanks again for joining and don't forget to hit the subscribe button so that you don't miss out on a single thing. And for now, let's enjoy our interview with Helen Disney. All right. So, um, hi, Helen. <laughs> Welcome to our show today. I'm really excited to have you on. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, about some of the projects that you're involved uh, in blockchain? It would be great to hear. So I run a company called Unblocked, which I set up four years ago because I'd got to understand what was going on in the early days in the world of blockchain technology. And I felt that really the story of this innovation and this technology, which was so powerful for the world, was not being well told, particularly to senior business leaders and people in public life. So Unblocked was really the, the brainchild of of that discovery that the network I had from my previous career in public policy and journalism, which was a business and, and a policymaker audience, really knew nothing about what was going on in, in blockchain and particularly how it was being applied outside of financial services and payments. That's very interesting and definitely very interested in that, in that session for us to, to dive in, in this area, especially outside of finance, because yes, like you said, I think it's very valuable in so many areas, but the finance one has become very obvious. But there's so much gray area around um, things where blockchain could be useful that isn't finance. You know, I've even read some articles recently that uh, blockchain skills will be one of the top skills to have in the coming years. There was almost, almost um, well, it was a LinkedIn study, actually. Yeah, that's what I saw it. Um, I wonder what the, are those skills? It's not very obvious. What are blockchain skills? If you could cover that a little bit for our listeners. Sure. Well, I think 
this has to be broken down a little bit into um, different facets. So obviously there's a high demand for developers, um, people that have programming skills and coding skills um, who can actually build the technical infrastructure um, that underlies blockchain projects. Um, and that's both sort of being able to develop a blockchain platform, but also see how it connects with other technologies and develop smart contracts, which are pieces of software that can help automate activities on a blockchain so there are lots of technical skills obviously because it's a technology ultimately but i think blockchain skills really are just skills and what i mean by that is i think as blockchain becomes more inserted into uh, everyday life and into different industries and different parts of uh, what we do in our economy we need all of the skills that people have in, in the rest of the economy so we need we need investors who understand how to spot the most promising early stage projects we need communicators and marketers um, I mean part of my role as I said is storytelling so um, being able to actually humanize and tell the stories of these projects so that people can understand what they are um, you know we need people who can run businesses effectively and have business experience because a lot of the projects that are quite early stage may have great technical platform but perhaps the you know owners of the business and the creators of the technology don't really understand how to scale and run a business at a larger scale which is what's going to happen to their company if they succeed so we need all of those talents um, and I think there's a sort of assumption that it's only about the coders and, and I think that's very much changing and things like graphic design and user interfaces and making things that look user-friendly to the person who's not a technologist is is going to be a big part of the next wave of blockchain. Okay interesting so you're saying that the, 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 the next important skills will be the creative skills to come into the space and sort of make that that experience more user-friendly. I recently read well, one of your articles actually which was very um, amusing and um, the title was why is blockchain like a hoover <laughs> and I really enjoyed some of the um, definitions that you've given blockchain something that I didn't think of myself. Um, it would be great to, to maybe for you to give a summary of that and, and maybe tell us how should we define blockchain in, in 2020. Yeah, well, it was a fun thing to write, actually. And, and you know, my, my little Henry Hoover was happy because he got an outing on social media. So <laughs> he got his photo all over Twitter and Facebook and, and LinkedIn. <laughs> but um, Henry's now famous. But the... Um, the concept was that, you know, when I first started learning about Bitcoin initially, and, and Bitcoin is really the first blockchain, um, a public blockchain, an open source project that anyone can get involved in, and the one that probably most people have heard of. Um, we used to, you know, that was back in 2014, and, and a lot of technologists were involved in the, in the kind of development of that much earlier than 2014. We used to talk about the blockchain, and you were sort of told off if you didn't say the blockchain, because... But both there weren't really that many other blockchains, but also people considered that Bitcoin was going to be the one blockchain to sort of rule the world. And I think, you know, that that now has changed. So we tend to use blockchain in the same way as we say Hoover. And Hoover is obviously a brand name, but it's come to define all those devices that we use for cleaning up the carpet and cleaning up the floor. And they could be made by any company. Um, so that's why I say blockchain is like a Hoover, because actually you have a whole marketplace now of different types of blockchains and distributed ledgers and there's a slight difference between the two so you have the public blockchains like bitcoin which i mentioned which are open source projects but you also have people building enterprise solutions which are more closed networks that people have to be given permission to join so there's always a lot of jargon in blockchain but what people call permissioned networks so you have to have permission to actually join that network and then you even have hybrid solutions where you have um, sort of a combination of these factors so maybe some parts are public some parts are private or different blockchains kind of are linked together so um, it's becoming a lot more complicated but people just tend to say blockchain because it's sort of a shortcut for describing this whole idea of a distributed ledger based system so yeah I mean I, I mentioned quite a few different definitions so there are very practical definitions about you know blockchain being a chain of blocks you know the block comes um, from grouping together a number of transactions into a group or a block um, and then linking them together in a, a chain so that's why we have the word blockchain so essentially it's a, a set of transactions that are in a chronological order that's immutable so you can't go back and edit and change it and once the blocks are joined together you can't break that chain 
So that's the very practical definition of a blockchain. Um, but the more interesting, I guess, is the sort of conceptual idea of, of what blockchain means for society, which is kind of where I come into things and, and try and get people interested. So um, some people have described it as sort of like the worldwide ledger. So as we have the World Wide Web, the internet, yeah. and we can exchange information directly with other people, we will now also have a worldwide ledger. So we will be able to record not just information that we can share directly with someone peer to peer. So that's really what a website is. It's seems so obvious to us now, but in the past, you know, if you wanted train information, you would have to phone the, the railway station or go down to the, the railway station and, and look on the board or look in a book to find out what time the train was going to go. And now obviously we can all do that on a phone in, in a few seconds. Um, so that's revolutionary and we will have the same revolution when it comes to things of value. So that could be a cryptocurrency, a form of online money, but it could also be perhaps the exchange of valuable healthcare data, or it could be you know, tracking your ownership of a property or lots of other types of assets of value that we have now that we're unable to really share and, and trade online because we don't know who people are online. So we can't really trust them. And what blockchain brings in is this kind of trust layer. So um, not that necessarily everything on a blockchain can be, you know, entirely verified because you could say, well, someone could put false data on a blockchain. Um, but it sort of brings in the idea of, if you like, um, an ability to trust and transact with anybody around the world. And I think that's probably where the definition is, is most interesting to me. Um, so, Helen, something I always wonder about, so you mentioned worldwide ledger, and I wonder for it to be worldwide, and I hear very often governments been involved and regulations are tough, and in some countries it's not even allowed. So I'm wondering how much uh, different governments need to buy into it for, for this thing to become a worldwide solution. That's a really interesting point. One of the projects I've been working on for the last year or so is called GovChain Research, which is about the use of blockchain by governments and public sector bodies. Um, and that takes a number of different um, kind of aspects. But one is obviously the use of blockchain by governments to deliver services, but also things like governments looking at you know, issuing their own central bank digital currencies and so on. So um, there is an increasing interest, I think, <clears throat> You know, from when I first started, people didn't even really know what Bitcoin was. And now, obviously, the word blockchain has gone up the political and the kind of media agenda. Um, there's still a lot to be done on regulation. So what you saw in the GovChain project, we, we mapped about 20 different countries and lots of other jurisdictions that we looked at that had an impact on policymaking worldwide. And there's a huge variation. You know, some countries still say that essentially they're banning cryptocurrencies. Um, others are you know, putting in place very ambitious targets to have all their government services on blockchain by, you know, the next couple of years. Um, so there's a huge variation in, in sort of levels of adoption. Um, and that's, I guess, inevitable. Just every country has its own yeah. politics and its own priorities. But um, the parts where we can make progress, I think, is common technical standards. Um, so creating frameworks which will allow more sort of, blockchains to talk to each other more simply um, but also you know more regulatory certainty because if you're launching a blockchain company you know you need to be able to know basic things like you can get a bank account but also you know if you're a lot of what blockchain projects are doing are, are creating different types of so-called tokens or types of cryptocurrencies that are not necessarily used as money but are used as a way of kind of accessing services or kind of getting rewards for being involved in the network um, or being able to exchange a digital form of a security, like a share of a property, which I mentioned before. And each of those types of tokens are kind of defined with different names in different places, different um, kind of legal and regulatory implications. And so there's a huge barrier to entry to actually launching these innovative companies because you're never quite sure if you're going to be safe from regulators coming along and saying actually what you did was illegal or you need to pay money back to your investors so we do need to do a lot more work on that to accelerate the confidence of entrepreneurs to actually be able to launch into markets and know that their their product and their service is not going to ultimately cause them harm absolutely. or expose them to risk absolutely and, and what do you think will be the position of the uk government on blockchain in the next couple of years 
I think it's um, moving up the agenda. Um, obviously, the last couple of years or three years have been sort of largely consumed by our Brexit discussions, and that has put, I guess, the priority mm -hmm. of technology a little bit on the back burner. Um, behind the scenes, I think there is still a great interest in blockchain. I think the, the concerns that people have are around, you know, if I'm going to use this in government, how can I do it in the right way and not expose taxpayers to risk or waste taxpayers money? So how can we understand this blockchain marketplace that I was talking about? How can we do the procurement in the right way that we actually purchase the right blockchain types of providers to deliver the services um, so yeah behind the scenes the government have been experimenting lots of different government departments are doing things behind the scenes um, there's also been obviously things like crypto assets task force has been launched here to actually look at this issue of how you define different types of tokens and what the regulatory framework should be and I think also the FCA is starting to understand that not just blockchain but all types of frontier technologies so obviously that includes things like artificial intelligence the advancement of the internet of things um, maybe quantum computing um, you know all, all these emerging technologies which will somehow come together um, are going to really impact how they do financial regulation and it's not just the way it was in the past where you had banks and large financial institutions providing these services so they are shifting their mindset to the idea of things like sandboxes where companies can experiment with technology with the backing of regulators and the regulators themselves also go through an educational process of understanding what these new business models are. Mm -hmm. So I feel like it's going up the agenda. I, I, I would like the UK to move quicker and I think there's lots of different pockets of things happening but they're not very joined up. Um, so if I had one sort of criticism it would be that the UK now needs to stamp its mark a bit more but it particularly post-Brexit, is going to still be a place for fintech and blockchain companies to want to locate themselves and to see more clear signals that that is something the government wants to encourage in order to create jobs and to, to make London and the rest of the UK still a place where people want to locate those kind of cutting-edge businesses. Yeah, of course, that would be very important. But which government then would you say is the most advanced at the moment with, uh, uh, with blockchain? Um, I mean, I guess the companies that came out uh, as the leaders in our research, we did a, a traffic light system, which was a little bit simple, but the idea was to try to give a, an acid glance um, impression of how countries are doing. So red was skeptical, orange was an adopter, and green was the ones, uh, sorry, an ex uh, amber was an explorer and green was an adopter. So the ones that are actually using blockchain in the public sector or right. have created a a good regulatory um, and policy environment for adoption of, of blockchain and crypto assets. Um, so countries like Estonia often get mentioned because Estonia was very early on to introduce kind of e-identity and to create, uh, for example, healthcare records on the distributed ledger system. Um, the other places that do well, often it's countries that have the ability to both bring to bear um, the right kind of level of finance to bring this in and also sort of political will to get it done so countries like Bahrain, um, Dubai, um, those kind of places where they've set these quite ambitious targets to change their economy away from being you know more based on uh, fossil fuels and oil towards um, being driven by technology and, and harnessing their kind of business environment towards capturing those those companies um, and then some of the smaller jurisdictions I think you know Malta, Gibraltar um, Isle of Man to some extent have tried really hard because they already have um, a good reputation for finance and fintech to sort of harness blockchain as part of that and to be able to add that to their kind of toolbox of things that they can offer as, as smaller jurisdictions that need to compete. Mm. How about China? I, I mean there's quite a lot of noise about China at the moment. Well, China's really interesting because when we did the research, we put them on red, and that was because there had been quite sort of um, mixed signals in terms of initially, you know, some cryptocurrency exchanges being banned, um, you know, lots of kind of negativity towards the concept of cryptocurrency, obviously, because it presents a, a threat of capital flowing outside of the kind of political control of the government and so on. But then, you know, within a few months of us launching the research, obviously we had a bit of a, an about turn with um, China's leaders saying actually they want to be at the forefront of blockchain and, you know, thinking about launching um, a digital renminbi. Um, and suddenly, you know, China was sort of 
shooting back up the the kind of the list in that way um that said i do think that um there's a lot of political uncertainty and also i think china um is consumed at the moment with you know obviously healthcare crisis coronavirus um there's been political unrest in hong kong so um there's a lot of money in china to put behind big blockchain projects and you can you know if you're if you're in a different political system you can get big projects done very fast i mean they built a hospital in 10 days so you know you can imagine how quickly they could build a blockchain project um but you know the sort of level of certainty for business is is quite a lot harder to navigate so um i do think china will make a big impact but probably it will also make a big impact on just encouraging other countries not to fall behind um sort of asian tigers and you know make sure that they stay competitive globally because it, there's a political as well as an economic imperative to to not let china race too far ahead of everyone else well oh, thank you for that as these are very valuable points um i guess i'd like us to move now and talk a little bit on what we touched at the beginning um and that is what where else can we apply blockchain outside of finance and um could you tell us a little bit more where do you see which industries do you see would be the first ones to leverage blockchain and you've mentioned briefly healthcare so i would like to hear a little bit more about that yeah so healthcare is really interesting one i i mean i would have said if we hadn't already talked quite a bit about public sector that healthcare and public sector i think are two areas that are really advancing quite fast um going a bit deeper into healthcare there are lots and lots of different examples of how blockchain can be applied in healthcare which people may not naturally associate that with the healthcare sector but um it kind of goes from right from the sort of r&d stage through to the consumer so if you start from the r&d stage um there are projects looking at things like how to make clinical trials more transparent in terms of the reporting of the results from a scientific point of view but also helping the people that volunteer to be in the clinical trials make sure that their data is kept more securely because um cryptography allows us to um keep that data very secure and to make sure that you can anonymize the data which has been a problem in the past for companies that want to recruit people into clinical trials that the data can sometimes be de-anonymized and so patients very sensitive personal data can be exposed and if particularly if you're suffering from certain conditions you might be very unkeen for that to get out into the public domain um so you know that's the kind of early stage and similarly around things like intellectual property protection you know how can we perhaps commercialize new treatments in a different way so there's lots of different types of intellectual property not just patents but um you know trade secrets licensing arrangements um that happen within pharmaceutical industry and at the moment the the tools that we have are a little bit blunt but i think using smart contracts and blockchain you could potentially create some different kinds of marketplaces where companies could collaborate in you know more innovative ways um to commercialize one another's research so sometimes in clinical trials you have data that's not really used for whatever reason mm-hmm. another company could take that data set and actually use it and commercialize it um and pay a fee to the the company that did the original research to sort of take that data off their hands and and use it because it saves them money and they don't have to repeat the trial all over again so that's sort of at the the kind of early stage scientific end and then you kind of move through the business um to business applications so things like supply chain is a big one so um pharmaceutical companies have a lot of issues with counterfeit medicines so how can we eradicate fraud in the supply chain how can we make sure that medicines are kept in the right way the right temperature and stored safely so that um not just counterfeit but also substandard medicines can be um eradicated from the supply chain um and medical devices as well so those need to be again um kept in the right sterile conditions and the right temperatures um and there's a lot of compliance and regulatory aspects to dealing with medical devices so that's a big obvious kind of business to business application that just will save companies a lot of money and will also be very good for patients um same can be said of kind of care administration we we have a lot of paperwork and unnecessary costs in the administration of care reconciling insurance claims in for example the US where it's an insurance based system but also in state driven systems we have huge amounts of paperwork um 
and if you can put all of that onto a distributed ledger and you can automate a lot of the payments and reconciliation using things like smart contracts just to speed up payments you can save you know um, one example I saw um, doctor payments were sped up from 60 days to 60 seconds so that's a huge saving obviously from the doctor's point of view I think most of us would love to be paid two months faster for our work um, but also you know for the system itself you're not wasting a lot of time with people the back office functions doing that um, and then I guess the interesting part for patients is how does it affect us as individuals so um, in the future you know we may actually be able to own our own healthcare data and that's probably still quite difficult to achieve now but um, you can think of something like genomic data you know if you wanted to get your genome sequenced you wouldn't necessarily want to give that information away to somebody else but you might want to perhaps consider donating some of your data towards scientific research if you have a particular condition mm -hmm. or you might even want to sell your data and there are some ethical issues around that but if you think how this could completely change the way we do scientific research and give access to a lot of types of information from patients that we don't have access to now most of our research is very sort of driven by western medicine and western examples but we could have access to people all over the world with rare conditions or um, different types of healthcare data that we don't really tap into right now so mm -hmm. there's a lot of possibility for um, I think scientific research to really tap into this kind of blockchain data marketplace of healthcare information. Yeah this is, this is a huge another very interesting aspect of it and, and you kind of touched on it um, it's the interoperability and I know it's a huge problem in the healthcare industry so while I was doing the research, one of the most surprising things that I've come across is that, well, it's actually not that surprising, but there is no universally recognized patient identifier. So, and this is truly dreadful if you think about um, that if we had a unique patient identifier, we would be able to easily solve the problem of mismatched patients. And that's caused so many um, errors in the past and increased patient harm. I even recently read a, an interesting book and it was comparing the healthcare industry with the aviation industry. It was called um, The Black Box Thinking. And again, they provided a shocking statistic which stuck in my head. But the idea is, um, so in 2013, there was a study in the US where they um, put together the number of premature deaths associated with preventable harm so things like misdiagnosis from drugs or injury during operations so many things like that and those were more than 400,000 deaths a year in the US alone so they compare that to um, it's equivalent of two jumbo jets falling out of the sky every 24 hours and if you think about that we don't know about those deaths we don't know what's happening in the medical world at all and the idea that if we had a unique patient identifier, which would be easily sort of passed between different um, health institutions, then we would prevent this many deaths. Um, and I'm guessing blockchain would definitely be able to help with that, right? Yeah, so I think one of the foundations of all of this is, is digital identity. So how can we create a sort of single identity for ourselves as users of services? Um, and in most countries um, in the West, you know, there's some kind of government issued identity um, so it shouldn't be too hard for us to create um, you know a, a kind of self-sovereign identity system where you actually own your own identity and then you can access services and once you've created your identity it doesn't really matter which service you're accessing you could be accessing welfare benefits or you could be accessing your GP your family doctor or you could be accessing you know reapplying for your driving license um so you know just doing that one overarching thing could have huge ripple effects to all these other parts of government services um and it, it's potentially a cost saver for the government but it's also a huge benefit for us as individuals that the hassle factor you know we still go down to the post office you know if your post office still exists and take hard copy pieces of paper your council tax bill in the uk you know your local tax bill or your utility bill or your driving license to actually prove who you are for so many interactions that we have and that just seems so outdated in the modern world why why could we not do all of that in digital form um if the political will is there i think you know we could achieve that quite quickly 
Um, and then as you say, there's a human cost to that because test results go missing all the time. Things still get sent out in the mail second class. You know, I've, I've had test results myself where, um, you know, by the time I've received the piece of paper telling me my test results, the eventuality that related to that test result has already taken place um, <laughs> because it took so long for me to actually get the result, you know. So um, it's just a question of really simplifying all of these systems and a, a single sort of identifier, as you say, or a single ID would be a huge way of, of just cutting out the middleman. I don't know how much of that is actually the case, but um, I know there is this thing called information blocking, and that is a challenge that apparently any system like that will face because um, the private institutions, or even the hospitals, sometimes it's in their interest not to become transparent because really they don't want to lose out on patients and they want to make it as difficult as possible for them to move to another hospital or and that's why you know there's such slow progress in developing that infrastructure do you think this is really the case and this is sort of the attitude that um, we will be taking i think there are always vested interests in any system um transparency can be seen positively i mean for for the patient's perspective obviously we would like to know transparently you know where our test results are um but obviously that puts increased pressure on providers um, to be more efficient and to do things in different ways. So I think vested interests and lack of education are the biggest things holding that sort of thing back. Um, I think that said, once people conceive a different way of doing things, it can shift. So, um, you know, with a lot of blockchain healthcare projects, you know, people don't like to necessarily share their data because the way things are set up within the healthcare system they can't see an advantage to doing it um or they can't see how it can be done because in the past systems were centralized and so it seems like just another hassle um but if you can sort of show people that all right well this might change some things about the way we do things now but it could also offer future benefits and other new possibilities we haven't thought of um it starts to slightly sh shift their thinking um and a lot of people in healthcare systems are really frustrated today. You know, doctors are leaving the profession because they feel they don't have enough autonomy. Um, patients get very frustrated with how slowly things operate. So um, I think, you know, if you can show people just a demonstration of how it actually works um, and see that there are benefits to sharing. Um, mm -hmm. And it'll, there'll always be commercial sensitivities, but, you know, there are some common goals we can achieve by sharing certain things. Then I think you start to get a little bit more buy-in for that concept. Yeah, so do you know of any um, example projects or applications that have been built on blockchain in the healthcare space? Yeah, so I mentioned the idea of um, the doctors being paid faster. So there's a company in the US that's already doing that, partnering with various doctors' networks. Um, so they're speeding up these payments for doctors. And the idea is not just to speed up the payments, but also to do what's called value-based care so that um, you can also get additional payments based on performance so if the doctor meets certain criteria as part of the consultation they could also be incentivized to actually give better services to the patients um, in the UK we've got pilots going on in the NHS around medical credentialing um, so uh, um, that means doctors who often move around them for various reasons have to constantly keep proving their identity again and again if they move hospitals or they move to a different provider um, and that wastes a lot of time um, it means they, they're held up in the amount of time they can spend treating patients and we don't have enough medical staff as it is so if we can prove that that actually works and that every doctor could have um, their own identity online and they wouldn't need to keep redoing it every single time they move jobs that would be a huge benefit to the healthcare system um, and then there's also, um, you know, some more um, examples where it's combining not just blockchain, but other technologies. So things like remote care. Um, so I'm, I'm working with a company at the moment that's starting some pilots in the NHS where they have a medical device that can take um, vital signs from patients um, from a distance and it can be uploaded so that you can check on somebody even if you live far away so that could be a carer or relative that keeps check on uh, their loved one from a distance um, and that can save the NHS a lot of money obviously other healthcare systems as well um, they don't yet have the blockchain platform um, 
live, but that's the next phase of what they're doing. So they have the medical device um, and the goal is to then be able to um, put that data on a blockchain so that you can um, gather that information and do other things with it. Oh, wow, that's great to hear that there, there are already actual real projects that are happening in this space and it's not just like um, um, conceptualizing here. That's, that's fantastic. And I'm sure we could keep talking about healthcare for hours. Um, but I would also like to maybe spend a little bit of time and, and actually um, discuss with you more specifically the topic of um, women in blockchain because I mean, at the end of the day, <laughs> that's why we're here. And, um, and I really hope that just like myself, our listeners, um, especially our female listeners, can hear the potential and value of blockchain um, from our conversation so far and, and get excited about this space, at least intrigued. Um, but I think what would help to, to paint the picture a little further is if you could tell us a little bit more about um, your perception of how many women there are currently in blockchain, either in London or if you have some global statistics. Um, in other words, how big is the female blockchain community? So when it comes to women in blockchain, it's actually quite hard to define how many women are in blockchain. And I guess part of it is defining what you mean by women in blockchain. So cryptocurrency users for example um, people that um, own bitcoin the vast majority of bitcoin owners are men um, probably only about 10 percent if, if as much as that are um, female users of, of bitcoin just as a technology for for payments or for holding value um, in terms of blockchain companies people that have actually set up businesses or work in blockchain companies and blockchain startups um, it's generally around the single figures it's quite hard to get good information for that but um, probably only around five to eight percent of um, blockchain startups are started by female entrepreneurs um, and um, in the developer community if you look at kind of developers in general not not in blockchain but just developers it's it's um, women only make up about 10%. Um, so it's almost certainly less than that in blockchain. So we're still in the single figures really. Mm -hmm. um, same for investors, only around 8% of investors in blockchain are women. So we need to do a lot um, to encourage more women to get involved because there's an impetus from the female perspective, which is that if these are the jobs of the future, the wealth creation opportunities of the future, um, and you know the things that are gonna change our society, then women have to be involved in that. It, it benefits us, but also it benefits businesses. Um, because if you look at performance of companies in general, those that have more diverse employee base and more diverse boards perform better financially and are more commercially successful. So it's not just that. Um, it will be good for women from our perspective, but also it would be good for business if we have more diverse representation within the blockchain world. Uh, and I think for me, when I first started, you know, I just was surprised at how few women there were. Um, and I guess, obviously, it was a very new cutting edge thing when I first got involved in Bitcoin. Um, and it was mostly developers and developers tend to be male and finance tends to be more male. So it wasn't entirely surprising, but I just felt once I understood it, this was such a revolutionary thing that it would be an enormous waste if more women didn't get to know about it. Some of the common challenges that some women may face are things like equal pay or fewer leadership opportunities across sectors, not just technology, I suppose, but um, industry-specific bias and then obviously motherhood and all those things. Um, it, it would be great to hear your views or potentially if you have, um, you know, from personal experience or general advice for women um, on navigating this, these challenges. I think the first thing is to get educated because there's an assumption that this is not for me. Um, I mean, I certainly felt a bit like that when I first got involved in Bitcoin. I didn't come from a technology background. I'm not a programmer. I also didn't come from a finance background. So there was an overwhelming sense of, I don't really understand everything that people are talking about. And that leads me to feel less confident. So I think getting educated in whichever way you can, going on a course, there are master's courses now in blockchain, um, reading a lot of books, you know, listening to people, going to events, just learning and, and you know, meeting other people who are like-minded who might help you navigate into that world and into those networks is, is hugely valuable because it boosts your confidence and it also means that you've got people who can then offer you opportunities to really you know, kind of get your hands dirty and get involved um, in a project. And I think it's only when you start getting involved in real projects, you start to really understand what it's all about because it's one thing to know the theory and another thing to actually get 
sort of stuck into a, an actual project. And you can get into stuck in, into projects in many ways. It doesn't have to be, you know, through, um, you know, writing code. It can be getting involved in marketing a project, getting involved in investing in a project, you know, doing due diligence on which are the best blockchain startups in your industry, um, you know, or just trying out using, um, you know, a blockchain-based browser like Brave and seeing how you can get rewarded in tokens for, you know, looking at, at content in a, a new type of browser. So, you know, there are lots of different ways you could sort of experiment. Is that just sort of browser called Brave? Yeah, so um, there are lots of different um, services available on blockchain and, and one is the idea of, of having a different type of internet browser. So Brave was created as a way to try and turn the sort of internet dynamic on its head. So nowadays we use browsers and we get a lot of information sent to us in the form of advertising or surveys that people want us to fill out to get our, our data and our views about things. And the idea of Brave is that it, it, it's a browser that works like any other browser, um, but that you get um, this token, this kind of reward point, if you like, for viewing content. So if you choose to, you don't have to, but if you choose to, um, you can look at adverts and get rewarded with a token for kind of giving away your preferences, the things you're interested in. Um, but you can also set the level of privacy that you want to have so that if you don't want any adverts or you don't want people to know what you're looking at on the browser, then <clears throat> you can keep that secret. Um, so that's just one example of a way that someone could quite easily tomorrow start, you know, using a blockchain project and seeing how it works and seeing how it's different from the current way that we, we use the Internet. For sure. And I think what, what you said earlier about um, coming into the space with no technical skills and not necessarily from finance, I think it's just very empowering because from all from so many women, and I work in, in, in the tech field myself, but from so many women that I've spoken to about blockchain, they, especially they're not coming from a technical background, they, they sort of feel there is no way to get into that space. And it, it was very refreshing and empowering to hear how you, you, you've done it. And maybe on that, if we can expand a little bit and maybe talk about skills that are not necessarily um, technical or in finance, what skills that people currently have, especially women, that they could turn into blockchain skills, be it marketing, you already mentioned the creative skills or designers, et cetera. But what other skills do you think people can start leveraging um, in entering that space? I think a lot of different things. I mean, one of the big things we haven't spoken about is sort of policy, regulatory and, and public affairs um, experience, because as I mentioned, the regulatory environment is complex um, and many people in the technology world don't really understand how the policymaking process works or how to do advocacy around their broader interests in terms of not shutting down technological innovation. And if you see more advanced industries, like let's say we, we were speaking about pharmaceuticals or um, you know, financial services, you know, a huge amount of time goes into understanding what legislation is likely to be coming up, what regulation is coming up, what policymakers are thinking about doing to regulate the industry. Um, and at times, you know, right now our, our industry, the blockchain industry is quite disjointed on that. So um, that's a huge area that people I'm sure have experience from, you know, financial services or other industries, reg tech experience that they could apply in blockchain. Um, I already spoke a bit about creative skills, communication skills, all of those things are, are very important. Community building, um, for most of these projects to succeed, it, it takes network effects because there's no point to have a token or a cryptocurrency if nobody else is using it. So um, how can you spread the word about what you're doing? How can you communicate it in a way that the average person who's not technical, which is most people, can understand? Um, and how can you get user adoption? That's about you know telling stories, having very simple um, nice looking materials, user-friendly interfaces, apps. Um, so there are lots and lots of different aspects. And then obviously making sure that the company can actually grow and succeed is about the right regulatory environment and being able to attract investment or, or partnerships. So business development skills, regulatory skills, you know, legal advice. Um, a lot of lawyers are, are getting very interested in these technologies because their clients of the future will be the ones who need to understand how to do their crypto taxes, how to have a crypto divorce, you know, how to um, deal with a partnership arrangement for a, a company that's got a very different structure from the structures of corporations that we had in the past. So if we were to summarize it in, a, let's say, a, a three steps for someone to um, enter the space, what would be the three things that need to do 
um, in order to sort of upskill and um, get in basically. I think the first one is education absolutely so you really need to read you need to meet people you need to go to events you need to at least develop a broad strategic understanding of, of what blockchain is and what its implications are for the field that you want to go into so you can kind of enter with confidence that you know what you're talking about because it will be hard for you to get a job unless you feel confident on the, the subject um, I think at the same time you can be building networks um, it's getting to know people in the industry it's, it's quite a niche industry but people are very willing because they're so enthusiastic and passionate about technology they're willing to to introduce you and to share knowledge and certainly women's networks that I'm involved in I'm involved in various different initiatives um, there's one called the bigger pie there's um, women in blockchain meetups that we do as part of London Blockchain Week um, and there's also Women in Tech Revolution and various others that do events around these topics so they will happily um, you know they'll just by going you will meet other people but they will happily network you and, and introduce you to job opportunities and other people that you can meet um, anyone can join those groups right so yeah and they're, they're, they're open to women Yes, well, I mean, the events are open, many of them are open to women and men, obviously, because we also need men on our side in order to achieve these goals. Okay. Um, but um, yeah, they're, they're all open for people to join. Um, uh, and then I guess the third part is really defining exactly the value you think you can add. So in my case, I thought about what I could add and it wasn't going to be the technical skills and it wasn't really going to be working in a bank because I didn't have a finance background. So I had experience from my public policy making days of, of influencing ideas and working in um, verticals like healthcare or environmental issues, um, creative sector. Having been a journalist, I was very interested in the impact of blockchain on the media and, and creative content providers. So how could I bridge between those worlds and communicate the stories and help to accelerate projects through getting a more mainstream audience? So that was the niche that I identified for me, but obviously for everyone it will be different. Yeah, I think that's extremely useful um, to, to, for those who, who would be interested to, to start exploring that space. So, Helen, as we kind of now moving towards the end, I would just like to ask a couple of closing questions. Um, so, first of all, could you tell us um, what do you wish you had known when you started out? I think I didn't really understand um, how much blockchain could be applied in so many different fields so I think initially when I started I just thought this is just really about finance and payments and I'm not really sure this is for me um, because that's not my background and it was only gradually gradually that I started to sort of understand the development of blockchain and it was happening at the same time as I was learning but um, the fact that you could have um, all these other aspects to it that made it far more interesting to me um, the idea of you know being able to pay for media with micropayments these kind of things where it connected to my world so I wish I'd realized the different use cases I guess um, I think I also wish I'd realized that actually not being technical was a strength rather than a weakness because initially I felt a little bit uncomfortable to go on stage and talk about blockchain as a as a public speaker I thought I should my role should be to elevate people that were much more expert than I was from a technical point of view um, and then I actually realized that the fact that I wasn't technical was the strength because for most people, like when I started, there was so much jargon and so much terminology that didn't mean anything to me. And because of my journalistic background, I guess I just sort of plowed through it and tried to understand it. But most of us are time poor and we don't really have the ability to spend two years reading on blockchain and interviewing people and going to loads of conferences. And that's sort of what I did because it was part of my, my work and part of my personal interest. But um, I'm just sort of trying to save people that two years of pain that I went through, <laughs> give them some ready resources, you know, on my website or through my events that they can just jump ahead and not have to, to sort of navigate all of that painful technological, technological jargon that I had to figure oh. out for myself. Thank you. That's that is actually very inspirational. So thank you for that. And on that note, you've just mentioned, so where can people find you online? So um, my website is unblockedevents.com and there's a resources page there with a lot of videos, links to podcasts, books, articles, um, event information that people can find. Uh, we also have a newsletter that you can sign up to to find out what's going on in the industry, both our events and other things that are happening. Um, and, you know, I mean, now I think there are so many resources online, um, but obviously it's hard to know where to start. So I think starting with some... <laughs> 
yeah, general um, sort of big picture introductions to blockchain in terms of how it's going to impact on society. And then if it ter turns out you want to specialise in a particular field, finance or healthcare or property, then you can obviously go into, there are various industry associations that, that focus more specifically on those kind of topics, a lot of consortia and, and other kind of more vertical information. And we're actually going to be producing some more kind of one-on-ones and primers within different verticals this year. So hopefully people can come to our website in a few months' time and, and get the blockchain 101 for healthcare or, or whichever area it is they, they want to explore. Brilliant. I can't wait to, to get exposed to that myself. It's, I, I've really enjoyed navigating your website and, and really how, how clear the information is, is laid out. Um, I really appreciate that. Um, well, on that note, um, any other thoughts, any closing thoughts, anything you would like to add? Um, I guess just social media is the other way. So I have actually found a lot of information um, about blockchain and what's happening in the industry from particularly Twitter and LinkedIn. So um, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at hdisney or at unblocked events. Um, and I'm also on LinkedIn. If you want to connect with me, I'm always happy to connect with new people and help them um, find the resources that they need. So people that are thinking, I don't know anyone in blockchain, I don't know how to start, then send me a, a LinkedIn request and explain that you heard the podcast and I'll be happy to, to chat to you. Brilliant. That's wonderful. Well, Helen, thank you so much. It has been a wonderful conversation and I am sure we're going to have another one in the near future. Excellent. Thanks so much for having me and uh, congratulate Intelligence on this venture. I think it's a great idea and I'm looking forward to hearing the future episodes as well. Thanks so much for joining us today. To find out more information on Helen's projects and her contact details, please check out the show notes. If you enjoyed listening to this episode of the Women of Blockchain podcast, please be sure to subscribe to the show. And finally, if you have some time and want to share some love, please leave us a review. I will also leave my contact details in the show notes in case you want to get in touch. Thanks again for listening and I'll catch you all on the next episode.